Hey friends, I hope you're keeping cool as best as you can out there. I'm your host, Chris Racanello, and welcome to Field Pod's Season 2 series of Summer Shorts. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Monica Fabianska, the curator of the exhibition Women at War, an important current show of contemporary Ukrainian artists. So my name is Monica Fabianska and I'm curator of the exhibition Where We Are At, uh, titled Women at War, about uh, current war in Ukraine and featuring several of the best female Ukrainian artists working in the country. Uh, I happen to be a feminist art curator. I curated an exhibition about iconography of rape a couple of years ago at John Jay College, then an exhibition about ecofeminisms at Thomas Urban Gallery at the beginning of the pandemic, and last year the exhibition of Betsy Damon, a solo exhibition at La Mama Galleria. So I have a tendency to focus on women, and that's what happened here as well. How did you even get started on this show? If you're well informed, you know that the war is in the air, but you cannot completely foresee it. So we planned a very different exhibition. I was supposed to be a curator in residence at Friedman Gallery this year anyway, and we had the whole exhibition put together when the war broke out. And Ilya Friedman asked me if I would do another exhibition, start from zero, (laughs) from scratch, and curate a Ukrainian show. And I have to say that I that I was very that I wasn't sure I would like to do that. Who would like to curate war? It's really not about curating about it's not a curating about the war. It's curating war essentially. That what it right. becomes because you come in very close contact, emotional contact with people who are affected directly by the war. Right. And their stories, you know, when when I started working on this exhibition, almost all artists were still in Ukraine. By now only two of them remain on Ukrainian territory. So as we went forward with decisions about the exhibitions, I also saw their life disintegrating. Uh, and it, it's hard. You have to take it on you as well. So yeah. who would like it? But yeah. essentially, I realized that I shouldn't resist. Uh, there was a very, very unique coalition or confluence. Co- uh, how do you say yeah, about yeah, planet? confluence? Planets. Confluence yeah, of planets. <laughs> uh, there is a prominent gallery in Kiev uh, called uh, the Washington Gallery. And they collaborated with Friedman Gallery before. They knew each other and they asked if they could do something together this year because they were already, they came um, to Miami for the art fair in December and then they got COVID. They stayed in the US for a little while with their daughter and then the war erupted. So they were stranded here and they were looking for opportunities of collaborations with American galleries to, you know, carry on. And Ilya asked me if I would curate this. Right, yes. So that's how it came together. I've never seen you try to curate um, an easy show <laughs> around a subject that is not challenging or emotionally difficult for you. I mean, I, you know, you I, know, people see now a pattern in it. I don't think that I ever wanted to curate any of them in in, in some ways, except right. for maybe the solo of Betsy Damon. <laughs> um, and I don't want to say that the subjects choose me. I think they choose all of us. I just didn't blink. I just yes. felt like... You just said yes. I just said, okay, somebody has to do that, and I did. So it's not that I want to... I During the whole <laughs> COVID period, I was always telling my partner, the next exhibition I will do, I will do about smile and laughter. So wait for this one. It will come. <laughs> <laughs> 
You will, you will. I will. I just have to find a, a good conceptual way to approach. Like the, how to make... The right way, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Our world that right now feels can feel really heavy and dark. And you've been kind of swimming in the heavy darkness of it for a while with this exhibition. You know what, even in this exhibition, there are works that are either humorous, there is a fantastic moment of humor in the series of drawings by Aleftina Kakidze, mm -hmm. which follow five years of her mother's life in Donbass yes, under those occupation. Are so moving. It ends yeah. badly, but before it ends, there are ridiculous scenes, like really hilarious, <laughs> and she makes them hilarious. And you are supposed to laugh yeah. uh, because laughter makes us helps us survive. There are other works where which are really about life under under war. That it's not really about the front line. It's not about the fighting. It's not about the death. There are people who survive war, mm -hmm. and it's about survival, about giving birth, for example, during war. Right. right? You know, we of course have our gaze looking at this photograph, so it's sad in a way, mm -hmm. especially for us who are not in the war. But if this is your all reality, then there is joy in it as well. Yes. And giving birth. There's and all of this spectrum. Right, yeah. right, of course. And I actually see that a lot in these works. And the artist who um, did the works around birth, it's called The Womb, yes. right? And that one is, uh, is that the one where they're kind of emerging from the ground? Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about, and also they're in coal mines, are they? Yes. Yeah. So the artist herself lost her she was from Donbass and she lost her house when fights uh, began in yeah. Donbass in 2014. It's very important that this exhibition is telling about the war that has been going on for eight years, not just during yes. the last uh, few months. So there are works, about probably half and half of the works are created during the previous years of the war and half of them more or less uh, during the last few months after the full-scale invasion started in February. So this particular work by Elena Grom is based on was for her, was a, was a, as she speaks about it, was a tool to overcome her own trauma when he lost house, newly built house that she worked on for five years. And they just opened, they had an opening party, oh, and yeah. immediately the region was taken over by separatists supported by Russia, and they just had to move and flee. Right. She fled immediately, she became an internal refugee, so she, she moved to Bucha. Mm -hmm. from Donbass. Wow. The invasion started. She didn't even wait for the Russian tanks to, just... to you know, enter the, around mm -hmm. the Kiev and, and, and its surrounding where Bucha is. It's really very close of Kiev. She said that she was ready with her suitcase packed and her son in the car the moment Putin ended his uh, big speech on the night before the invasion started. Wow. And so she was internal refugee in Bucha, now she's in, an internal refugee in Ushhorod, which is uh, in southern western okay. part of Ukraine, so it's mm -hmm. safe there, and mm -hmm. I think they are with other members of the family. And she goes now back to, she, she used to go back to Donbass to photograph over these eight years live there, now she's going back to Bucha to photograph the aftermath of the massacre. Right. But so I'm sure getting her son out, I mean, it's yeah. such a primary... So that's also mm -hmm. why she photographs children a mm -hmm. lot. I mean, not all the photographs are about children. There, there is a whole series of, uh, I think that it's called Frozen or something like this, photographs of Donbass under snow in this frozen situation between one country and another, the war that never ends, the war that is not even... Uh, officially, of course, now we have an official war that Russia spells out, but before they, Russia pretended that it's just... Um, right. 
you know, uh, internal um, turmoil that is going on in the Donbas area. Right. So now officially now there's a war. Official. Yes. Before that, there was a war that was not spoken. Yes, yes. This official... is not a narrative that Americans were sold, right? Yeah. The yeah. Donbas region, all of yeah. the war that's happened there. Yeah. The, the narrative that was sold in the media to people living in the United States was not one of this is a war between Russia and Ukraine. And so this kind of reconceptualizing of history that's happening now, I mean, there's so much history packed into the exhibition. And I think, I mean, even just unpacking it through, we were just talking about the work with the children emerging from the coal mine, and you mentioned something, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about this idea of the Prometheus myth mm -hmm. and the way that that was mobilized mm -hmm. by the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. um, by Ukraine in the 1930s. You know, the deep histories that we just have been either misrepresented to people in the United States or just completely unknown. It's it's a very... Ukraine is in a re really very difficult situation mm -hmm. in terms of its own identity, yes. both for, pers for persons, for humans who live there, and for the entire society in the country, because it has history as a Soviet republic. Mm -hmm. So you can't hate the lives of your parents and your grandfathers. Right. It's, it's part of your DNA, it's part of your history. At the same time, this is a colonial, you know, communism could have been a great idea as it was uh, right. propelled. But then if it, it was actually the feminist and anti-national and like all of the things, right, <laughs> right, right. Yes, An anti-capitalist utopia, yes. it was wonderful. But uh, when it became a totalitarian state, also in terms of cultural values was very conservative yes. and we will speak about feminism probably in a moment um, it was a very weird mix of progressivism and conservatism where progressivism was used on the banners but the real life was opposite so for example prometheus was a greek god who um, according to the myth not only brought um, he was the god of underworld and he brought uh, he stole the fire from other greek gods and brought mm -hmm. it to humans so he's a god of technology and invention but also he's told in some versions of this myth to maybe to, to basically create humans out of soil so when we look into this mm -hmm. uh, makeshift uh, coal mines uh, which functioned Donbas Donbas okay let me step one step back uh, Donbas is a very particular area of Ukraine, which uh, was industrialized in the late 19th century. Actually, the city of Donetsk was founded by a man from Wales, Wales, UK. Really? Yeah. Oh. And of course, extraction, huge subject, yeah. uh, heavy industrialization. These lands were mostly, because of patterns of colonization, mm -hmm. were mostly, let's say it out loud, emptied out of people of Ukraine, mm -hmm the sand DNA yeah, forced migration like mostly of... Holodomor mm -hmm. Holodomor mm -hmm. is um, forced starvation that's the wow. exact translation of the word yeah. that killed between two and three million people oh in God. Ukraine in the the place in the world that produces the most of wheat and food was starved to death because of forced collectivization of agriculture by Stalin in the 1920s yes. and going forward into 30s this is not something that Ukrainian people forgot. 
this is something that they were forbidden to speak about right. for 80 years. On that, you have huge industrialization, metallurgy, mm -hmm. mining. Mm -hmm. So the uh, miners are represented in Soviet art as heroes in the glory of, of Prometheus, yes. etc. I think we can all imagine, we all know those paintings. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, action the and glorified also, minor yeah. and yes. also women being masculinized exactly. and present very, in very traditionally male jobs they they muscular yeah. blocky yeah, yeah yes they could participate yes. but they were supposed to do the double duty they were supposed to Quietly. do everything at home mm -hmm. with no help mm -hmm. men okay let me put it this way Women were presented as masculinized, but men were never uh, represented as feminized. And yeah. that exactly this carried into human lives. So on the face, women were free or equal in Eastern Europe. It's not just uh, the former Soviet Republic. Yes. The whole Eastern Europe had this problem that in the 1990s when communism fell, they all felt like, oh, no, no, we're equal to men. We don't need anything. It took about 10 years for them to realize, wait, mm -hmm. I mean, we're doing double duty here and nobody's helping us. So yeah. they were supposed to take care of the children, give birth to children, cook after work. Men were waiting for the dinner. The women would come back from the workplace and they would also, and they would have to cook the dinner. So that's a very specific mix of, you know, freedoms and limitations that you have in your mind, both as a state that is trying to create itself out of the oppression of colonialism mm -hmm. into the freedom. And what kind of freedom? What, what to choose? What are our options? And how can you choose in freedom when there is a constant crisis going on in your country? And there's also economical issues. Once, once you are part of an imperium and you know certain extraction or industrialization, railway routes, all of them lead to Moscow. Once you try to diverse, diversify and change economy, this is when Donbas, immediately after Ukraine became, became an independent country, Donbas fell into a huge crisis. Those, right, those of course, an economic crisis yeah. because of yeah. the coal mines. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess we're kind of starting to get into how feminism is so different, well, is significantly different from feminism and the history of feminism in the United States. And in this exhibition, you have, I think, the first woman who identified as making feminist art in the 1990s. Is that correct? Or I should say in Ukraine, who openly advocated and said that they were making feminist I, I, I don't want to um, claim too much because, mm -hmm. of course, when you put together a show in three months, I, and I, other curators may listen to this. <laughs> Don't do that. And also remind me to tell no the next time. Of course, not, not when a need like yeah. that exists. But one of but, the earliest. But, so I'm not sure that she is mm -hmm. the first. But yes, mm -hmm. Oksana Chapelek is um, an artist bo born in 1961, who is probably the oldest in this exhibition, um, identified as, as a feminist and did feminist works in early 1990s when it was not cool in Ukraine to do that because right. exactly everybody thought what do we need we're right we're free feminism as opposed to the west was always here right we had uh, the right to vote in i think 1918 the right to divorce in 1919 the right to you know legal abortion, abortion. 1920 mm -hmm. which was then revoked in 1930s right. immediately course, and Stalin it was illegal and, yeah. until 1950s mm -hmm. so this was like going back and forth but people believed that they were free women believed that they were free and and Chepelek started to very strongly um, assert her position also Vlada Ralko who's born in the 60s and whose drawings are in this exhibition, for both of them, the female body is a territory where a lot of 
atrocities, at which a lot of atrocities happen, either literally, physically, Mm -hmm. uh, on individuals, or in more metaphorical sense. For both of them, interestingly, a female stands for the land and for the nation. They try to discuss this idea that men project women as a one woman as standing for, for the entire nation and what it could right. be. Right, the allegory of the nation or the allegory of the land and how those are connected. When we go to history of art, you know, all of these fountains when you have uh, four or five continents, all of them are represented by women, right? Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The conflation of women. And and that has really stayed in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, violation of women is a violation of land. That goes centuries back. Of course. That tradition of rape as a tool of war. Yes. And, I mean, you talk about that in your wonderful essay that I encourage everyone to read. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's available on the gallery website. Yes, and yes. also mine, yeah. And on Monica's website. And we hope to publish a catalog uh, from this exhibition. That would be excellent. So maybe when this has come out, <laughs> that will be in the works. Yes. Yes, so another thing that you talked about previously I want to go back to because I, I don't want to lose it. There's three video works? Three video works in the exhibition, yes. And one of the video that's the largest video downstairs when you sort of descend into the cave <laughs> below. Into the coal mine. Yes, into the coal mine below. I was thinking about how you were talking about Soviet rewriting or post-Soviet rewriting of history even um, and how that video art seems like a big part of it is that it's using all of, a lot of found footage and collage and, and documents that are sort of quote-unquote real documents, right? That is um, found footage of ruins in the Donbass region or, and it's, it's from the 1930s to 1990s that the film is taken from. So Dana Kavalina, the mm-hmm. author of the work, which mm-hmm. is titled A Letter to and a... And she's pretty young. Too. She's the youngest yes. artist, I think, in the show. I yeah. think she's 26. You know, brilliance doesn't have anything to do with the age. No, there are no, brilliant people who are old. And she also has drawings too. Yes, so yes. there are two bodies of work, uh, two works in the exhibition, um, which all belong to one body of work that she never finished. So far, mm-hmm. she started to work on it about two years ago, and she calls it Mother Srebrenica, Mother Donbas. So both the film and the drawings are part of her process of thinking through mm-hmm. it. She took. Uh, she, she's she's working. She's analyzing four historical events where rape was used as war tool Mm -hmm. uh, in, of course, Bosnia in 1990s, where Serbs organized uh, rape camps in uh, Lviv pogroms of 1941, organized by Ukrainians and Germans on the Jewish women, then Chechen deportations organized by Stalin in uh, 1944, and of course Donbass. And the film downstairs is mm-hmm. about Donbass. There are two like threads in, in, in the film. One, of course, is the woman, again, representing the land, actually, right. who is right. violated repeatedly. And we don't see anything horrible in the film, I have to say. But it's kind of like a stream of consciousness poem mm-hmm. that we hear off uh, screen that's written by Kavalina and an, and a collage of experimental 
um, images, col animations, staged scenes, and found footage yes. from Donbass. And yes, she used the state um, found footage from 1930s, which is peak of Stalinist industrialization of the region. And then 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. In 1970s, Donbass was at, at its peak of, of mm -hmm. its power. Donetsk was called the city of 1,000 roses. Wow. The city of coal yeah. mines. So it was, it was the city of heroes of those Prometheus. It has its own legend and its own reasons to to pride, even though the work in these mines was, of course, very dangerous. These are one right. of the um, deepest mines in the world. So, of course, with fantastic Soviet technology, they were lacking modernization and there were a lot of deaths. Mm -hmm. So the contrast mm -hmm. to Pro the Prometheus, the Soviet art always hide, hides that. Hides yes. the truth, right? Yes. But anyway, it's part of, of history. It's part of the dreams of, as I always say, individual citizens and the whole society. And it's very hard to cut off your history and suddenly sail the other way to the West. So uh, in 2015, after Euromaidan revolution, mm -hmm. the Ukrainian government uh, passed the law of the communization, which made three communist parties in the country illegal, but also made outlawed all communist symbols that were out right. in public space, which yes. meant An erasure. hundreds of thousands of streets names being changed, mm -hmm. you know, Lenin monuments being mm -hmm. toppled, and also all symbols of Red Star, Hummer, the Hummer and Sickle, right. and everything else. Well, in the midst, in, among all of this, there were fantastic artworks. Of course. Uh, which were now not correct politically. And artists organized around trying to save the country mosaics. Uh, if you want to think of something that you know that is similar both visually and in terms of, of its quality to it, think of Mexican murals. Right. Public art on public buildings that is political, but that is also very colorful and codes or carries the DNA of local culture, of really of folk culture yeah, yeah. and local you grow traditions up this of folk people. Art. Yeah. So artists tried to save it, and uh, this is when the whole discussion inside the country started. Like, where? What is our history? Where does it start? Where does it end? Where does it lead us to? Who should? Whose history is represented? And artists are always those who try to tell a more nuanced version of history than the government will. It's true. <laughs> and you know, the situation that Ukraine is today shows you that there is no space for nuance. You have to defend your country. So. How can you talk about you know legalization of communism when you're fighting with Russia? It, it's a it's a very tragic situation, but the artists stand very very strong in a position of trying to defend the nuance, and I think they will carry it for the future for the posterity. I agree. I mean, and her video it comes across this fighting for the nuance of history, and I mean you can even think about it as the. Russian misinformation campaign about Donbass, right? Yeah. That's also yeah. part of this. Oh, yeah. You know, um, that's a more obvious part of rewriting history. But when there's programs of erasing names from monuments or, you know, taking down street names and renaming them or trying to get rid of the murals that are the mosaics, excuse me, that have been part of people's lives and part of their childhood and growing up with. I mean, all of those things are um, just so heavy handed on the part of the state. Yes, right? 
Yes. Um, and as I say, you know, war doesn't leave you a chain, a, 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 an option. Right. If you want to kill, they will kill you or your neighbors will. I mean, you have to be, you were, you were squeezed into the position of zero one. Uh, but that is a very, that is probably the main subject of this exhibition, historiography. Who writes history is mm-hmm. the main question. Mm-hmm. And it's not only that it was my attempt to present a history written by women. It's also that in that part of the world, it's an actual question of feminism, who writes yes. history. Yes. And uh, it's not a new subject for me. In <laughs> my previous exhibition of Betsy Damon, there mm-hmm. was a performance of where Betsy played Homer, a female yeah. commentator of history. Right. And I was always wondering, you know, there is this completely utopian question that I want to ask myself, would war even be a central uh, subject in history if women always wrote it. Right. We don't know, but considering how many works here are about life during the war, I'm kind of questioning this. So a fairy Dana Kavalina or Yevgenia Belarusets are examples of artists who have very deep thoughts about historiography and about where feminism really is not about representing women or women points of view. It's carrying feminist philosophy much farther into understanding that history to be in any way real or in any way objective, mm-hmm. if, if we can even uh, aspire to this ideal, would be to represent the voice of everyone, to represent a matrix of yes. voices of the unrepresented and different points of view that will be in conflict. But maybe because they will be heard, they won't be at war. So there's a lot of... Being included in the record even if you're not the dominant power, yes. I think is a huge part of the kind of work that we see in the exhibition. And Yevgenia wrote a book, right? She sort of is a historian and an artist in a way. She's a writer and okay. uh, an activist and a photographer. Could you tell us a little about her book? Yes, I, d- I just read it the last <laughs> oh, weekend. Good, good. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's you've called, been cramming. I mean, like you've done so much research. Yeah, for this bibliography exhibition. for this exhibition is yeah. long, but I also that was also one of the reasons why I agreed to do that because I knew that some of it I read years ago. Yes. So I do have uh, some background that allowed me to not be completely unprepared to do that. Yes. And I also knew where to look for this information immediately. Yes. So I'm sorry. So Yevgenia's But book. Yevgenia's books, uh, book um, is titled Lucky Breaks. It was published this year by New Directions, the English mm-hmm. translation. It's the book awarded in Berlin already. The first translation was into German. It's a book of, it's a collection of very short stories, sometimes page long, sometimes three pages long, of women's lives mm-hmm. in the, mostly the occupied territories during the last eight years in Donbas, but also in other parts of the country. And they are f- and this is a fragmented um, view of the world. As much as her photographs are, we have in the exhibition seven photographs out of the body of 150 that um, there are a portrait of life under war in the coal mines in Donbas. Uh, these particular photographs she chose for this show, they present women, but they're also photographs of men and uh, in the whole series. And they're all, you know, the discussion of ob- objectivity and, 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 and trying <laughs> yes. to represent reality in photography is, uh, the discussion is as long as photography is. Yes. But Evgenia pushes it and, and, and she philosophically tackles with the issue and her answer 
um, very important writers for her, both uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein and Hannah Arendt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she herself looks for the hope for realism or objectivity or responsibility for the subject and fragmentation of the reality and of and in choosing the hidden and un, un, invisible, unspo- not spoken about uh, elements of reality. So either groups that mm-hmm. are not uh, well represented. Mm-hmm. For example, she worked with Roma community in Donbas, um, documenting their life, wow. working with them. And she's also, you know, the, the huge issue here is the gaze, of course, because she's not a minor entering a minor. Right. She's not a Roma uh, entering a Romani community. She is not, I don't, uh, no, I, I don't want to take it any further. I have no idea about her identity, but she also did a big project about uh, LGBTQ communities in uh, in Ukraine. So she is seeking the description of reality of the of the mm-hmm. of the world that we live in through this lesser accepted or simply the communities that are that are just not accepted by by the majority. Yes, and whose lives are not unknown. And also, you have to understand one thing: who stayed in Donbas people who cannot go anywhere. Right. Just like people who stayed in New Orleans during Katrina. There are always people who have yes. no place to go, yes. who are too old, too sick, who cannot leave dogs and cats behind, who has who have no family anymore, yes. or whose family will not take them, or yes. who are just too old to risk. And, and also, Eastern Europe is not like America. You live in the house in which your grandparents and grandparents lived, and if that house was bombarded, which most probably happened, you rebuild it, and you're in the yes. same physical space. Yes. So the actual attachment, mm-hmm. v- to very the land personal attachment to the land mm-hmm. and place, is humongous. It's, it's you can't you can't right. even almost understand it as an American how strong that is. So it's very difficult for people to move. But out of the whole population of Donbas before 2014, um, about one, still about 3 million people lived there in, I think, 2017-18, I don't know how many now, mm-hmm. um, about 1.7 uh, went to Ukraine and about almost a million went to Russia. Wow. So half of the Split. population is gone mm-hmm. and half is doomed there. Yes. Yes. You know, that's something that um, one of the um, very last people brought to the United States on a slave ship. He did an interview in the 1930s. You know, he was in his 90s at that point. But he talked about the fact that he, after the Emancipation Proclamation and he was freed, stayed on the same plot of land and redeveloped essentially the same kind of family Mm -hmm. compounds that he was used to in Benin, you know, mm-hmm. when he was in Africa mm-hmm. until he was 19 and then kidnapped and taken here. But this kind of deep desire for comforting traditional family understandings of space and place, it's completely understandable why people don't leave. On top of the fact, this is another thing, just like with Katrina, the kind of ageism and the inability to move yes. that's just not factored in. The attachment to your cat or your dog and you don't have any family left and you need to stay with them, those are, that's a valid 
reason not to move, you know, and it's taken as if, oh, well, they're just staying and we're just leaving everyone behind there or something. But it's like, you know, why are they staying there? Right. Yes. Right. Yes. It's a lack of understanding or a purposeful kind of lack of understanding in the way it's portrayed, I think, which is why it's so important that we have artists who are working on more nuanced, complicated topics like this, like the artist who's going back and photographing in the Donbass region, yes, right? Like she's going back there and photographing people who've been basically purposefully forgotten by the media. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's because of the complicated structures like cultural and social traditions and also things like your ability or, you know, your age. It's such a difficult topic to really communicate in a clickbaity news article, you know. Also because we have tendency to really focus on the young. Mm -hmm. Such a talented yes, artist yes. and she has to go. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean yeah, yeah. each time I'm thinking of as I call them my artists. They're always <laughs> my, my artists. artists in my exhibition. They belong to me. I or it's the opposite. Yes, I belong, you belong to them. I belong to them fully. <laughs> but um, I'm always thinking that each of them stands for millions of people who were yes. moved from their houses and who don't know the next day. And the younger they are, the better for them. They will make it somewhere else, somehow. Yes. With pain, with trauma, with nightmares at night, but they will make it. The older people can't really move for, for all sorts exactly. of reasons. Emotional, yes. language barrier, physical health. Um, and just the energy enough. I'll just stay here, right? I'm always thinking of the old people during the wars. It's, yeah. it's so it's sad. Horrible. I mean, I also appreciate that, that there is such an age range in the exhibition. Mm -hmm. One of the artists did a project on a woman who was killed then. Yes. Uh, that's also a story about Donbas, one mm -hmm. of the best-known Ukrainian artists. Yeah, I, maybe I should have said that at the beginning. All the artists in the exhibition are the best-known artists of Ukraine. They, of course, I chose the women mm -hmm. artists. There are mm -hmm. also fantastic male artists there. But... Uh, they are not known in the United States, but most of them had museum exhibitions yes. in Europe or yes. participated in Manifesta, in Documenta, mm -hmm. in, in Venice Biennial. So they're not anonymous uh, on the other continent. And Aleftina Kakidze is one of them. She uh, lives in a small village near uh, Kiev. The village is called Muzici. And her mother stayed in uh, Donbas, where mm -hmm. they both came from, in Zdanivka, little village, which was uh, taken over by separate on the day when they started in I think it was April 12 or 13 of um, 2014 and uh, the series of 10 drawings tell you a story about their everyday conversations of the five years long period mm -hmm. um, and the only space the only place in this village where cell phones still worked where there was um ukrainian service basically signal was a cemetery so every day right. everybody <laughs> every old person who stayed in this little place went to the cemetery you know waited for like the break in shelling to go there and tell their kids oh that God. they were still alive right and then um the story ends in January 2019 when Mrs. Andreevna, who is called Strawberry, Klubnika Andreevna, <laughs> uh, because she was a gardener. Yeah. And that's the title of the, of the series, yeah, series. Strawberry mm -hmm. Andreevna. So she died at the demarcation line, at the wow. checkpoint between yeah. what is called by separatists the uh, Donetsk uh, People's Republic and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And she was one of half a million Ukrainian pensioners, retirees who stayed in Donbas, who had to cross the demarcation line several times a month to claim their pension, pension. in Ukraine. Uh, not only that half a million people had to do that, and she got a heart attack one day uh, on this on this checkpoint because it was very tiring. You know, you would come up by a bus, then you would go through, you know, they were keeping you at the border, mm -hmm. checking your documents, very military Right, one situation. of the drawings says it took 11 hours yeah. for some, is this for her a to, reference to? to yeah, mm -hmm. to, go, to go through and come back. Wow. Or 11 hours to get her pension from her house. Anyway, yes. very long for, for an old elderly person if you have to do this several times, especially. On, on the top of half a million people who, who registered in Ukraine uh, to do that, they had to register as internally displaced, something like this that was mm -hmm. a specific like, category of people created. Uh, you know, it became a no man's land. Of ATMs course. didn't work, yeah. there was no access to cash. Right. I mean, it was just crazy. So um, there were another seven hundred thousand people who didn't even register and who didn't just have access to their pensions at all. Wow. So that tells you who was left behind in Donbass and who just couldn't be taken care of. And uh, Aleftina is very well known. Most of artists in the exhibition here are very active politically. She is a UN envoy for tolerance in Ukraine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them took part in different kind of humanitarian yeah activism, actions, organizations within the, in different parts of their country. Uh, and this drawing, drawing series is very well known in, in Ukraine and it helped, it helped to inform the entire society who stayed in Donbass and why. Mm -hmm. There's no separation of family from war in this exhibition. It's all so immediate and personal and every artist in the show is being deeply affected and as you said before, I don't remember if we even started recording when you were saying this, but you know, that you yourself are feeling the emotional just weight of working with people whose families are still are many still in Ukraine, in areas of Ukraine that are not safe, you know, not maybe the southwesterly regions. Um, and we see that though in all of the work, right? There's representations of family. Um, there's representations also of, you know, like funny moments. There's the photographs too that are sort of the multiple personality photographs. Mm -hmm. Whose work is that? Katerina Yermoyeva. Okay. She's one of the artists who are still in Ukraine. She's mm -hmm. in Kiev. She's in Kiev still? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I can't believe she was able to get the work to you. Uh, I mean, photography work we print in New yeah. York. We print it in New York. That's, yeah. That was easier. It was much di more difficult to get the drawings here. Yes. <laughs> and the painting, and a huge painting. Yes, we're sitting in front of some unstretched, huge paintings right now. We are in the gallery. I should say we're in the back of the gallery. Yes, these um, were actually painted here uh, mm -hmm. in a New Jersey residency at Mocha Martha. There is a new residency mm -hmm. in New Jersey where Lesia Kamenko, artist in the show, got a residency for a month and she mm -hmm. came from Warsaw where she couldn't work at all. Uh, and here she painted this whole new series of monumental paintings. The one we have was painted just after, in the show, in, in a gallery, Great. was painted just after the invasion and I saw wow. it in Warsaw wow. in her um, studio, which yeah. was an artist residency that I helped um, 
uh, not completely created, but I was very much involved in many, right. many years ago. So I knew every piece of furniture <laughs> there. It was office furniture, and now you enter and you have a whole family wow. of artists and her daughter and her sister wow. living there. Yeah. And that's where I saw the painting yeah. for the first time. And that, what's the residency yeah. called? Uh, Mocha Martha or Martha Mocha. Uh -huh. I'm sorry if I'm misnaming no, no. them, but they were wonderful, and they are having another Ukrainian artist now, mm -hmm. Anastasia Podrovianska. Mm -hmm. So there is there are opportunities and I hope there will be more yeah and was part of her not being able to work there the stress or the location or was it just her whole family living with her or yeah you're asking about the family so you're asking for this story well it also but, it doesn't have to be told if it's not no 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 right. I wouldn't have told it if it was not to be told it's the story of the painting in the exhibition yeah. it's titled Max in the army and Melesia painted it just after Max was... Um, deployed? He wasn't even well, deployed he wasn't yet. He, was, he had to join... I don't know how much voluntary that was. I think that actually it wasn't that much voluntary at that point. He, right. he, but he joined um, territorial defense. And in the painting, mm -hmm. you see him in civilian you know, sneakers and a regular jacket and a bottle of water in his pocket. Um, that's how they joined the army. Wow. He's just saluting. Of so you course. see a civilian, you see yourself joining the army. And I think that that's one of the works. I, I chose a few works for a reason. So that we, living in a country... I knew that this exhibition will take place in a country that was never attacked on its land, except for the two towers. But it's, it, it was a little bit of a feeling, but it's very different from your territory being ravaged. Yes. Completely destroyed. Every piece of grass, every piece of life, every tree is, is, is torn to pieces. And to like be, there is no, you're asking about family and home, there is no difference between home front and war front. And battle, yeah. Right? Exactly. The battleground is mm -hmm. in you at your home sooner or later, more or less direct, but it is there. So um, Max Roboto, who's painted, uh, is a sound artist. He had a project once <laughs> in this very gallery where we speak. Wow. <laughs> and he joined um, territorial uh, defense um, in immediately when the war started. Lesia fled with her daughter to Warsaw in Poland. Um, when I visit her, visited her in her studio, it was the day when Max was called, was deployed to Donbass. Wow. So she was really quite emotional and she didn't want to part. When I saw this painting, I thought this is the one that I would like to show in the exhibition in New York and she didn't want to part with it. So yes. I took a while <laughs> to, to, to discuss it with her, but she finally agreed it's yeah. not for sale. Yeah. And, and now she, she's here too. And now she arrived uh, with her daughter uh, carrying the painting yes. rolled. <laughs> Um, with themselves and uh, she stayed in a residency for a month uh, and they married online Wow! <laughs> because Ukrainian government now allowed for online marriages between people who were separated uh, you know women and men women with children left the country not all of them were wed of course so it was very important for a lot of people to get married when the, when right. the war came it yes. just provided for some kind of stronger link or, or chain of life that helped men survive, that helped women to live through the separation. Very, very complicated. And um, we just learned last week that Max was moved to Western Ukraine. So he's That's in a safer good. place. That's good. Yeah, she will yes. fly to see him. Good. That's right. You were telling me she's going to fly to see him. Yeah. 
So she's still here for now? Yes, and then she's flying to Miami where she will be in a mm-hmm. residency for half a year. So mm-hmm. that's fantastic. That's the only one artist that is in the United States. Most of, most of the artists are in Germany or in Austria. Mm-hmm. And a few one, I think, in, in France. Ukraine still. A few two, in Ukraine. Three? Two, two in Ukraine, yeah. 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 I can't believe that one of the artists is in Kiev still. I mean, very intentionally, obviously. I don't know she that. Wants to be there I don't now. know that. I, yeah. I'm not sure of that. Yeah. Um, it may change in a minute, yeah. like it changed for other artists. Um, we spoke about this yesterday, you know, just because you know where your artists are. Your artists. <laughs> no, they are not my artists. <laughs> where, the art, where the artists are. Yeah. Um, right now, it doesn't mean, I mean, that's one of the things about war is it forces you to be so mobile. Yeah. you know, to have to migrate. Yeah. And I know. saw them taking different stances. Yes. Olya Fedorova, for example, who was in Kharkiv for two long months, over almost, almost three months, uh, under shelling, constant bombing of the city. She was just putting on Instagram images of what was destroyed in her vicinity. And she spent nights um, in her cellar um, where she started to write this poem prayers, one mm-hmm. of which we have in the exhibition, on a linen beds, because this was the artist material that was available right? to her. You yeah. Blick was closed. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we've already, we had already chosen her photograph for the exhibition, which was right. uh, made earlier in 2017. But when I saw them on Instagram, we were in constant contact every day. I asked um, if she thinks there is a way to pass it, this work to Poland. Yeah. And we found a way, uh, but the work was lost somewhere in the border in the sorting centers. It, it took many hands and many, the envelopes was growing bigger and bigger because it was packed inside another envelope and another wow. different, yes. other yes. envelopes it passed through the hands of my family too. And so many people helped to get it here. Yeah. But um, there, were, there, were, uh, there were long weeks uh, when I wasn't sure that even if it you know, makes it here, I was more afraid about Olya. Yeah. You have to check her website. There are all nine poems there. I will. And the cadence of them, how they come. Yeah. The, the one that we show is addressed to the enemy. Another one is addressed to the empire. The last one. Yeah, you will read the last one. The last one is about, um, yeah. is addressed to, to, to God directly. And it's, it's a plea to remember where you came from, but to be spared nightmares for the rest of your life. It's one of the most real things about the war that you can imagine. Yeah. A great poet, a great artist. Uh, So I'm happy that she's safe. I am too. And I will definitely, and I hope that anyone who's listening will go to her website. I'll put every, all of the links and information at the bottom. Um, you know, that's one of the things I think about this exhibition that was so striking to me, talking to you about putting it together and just being in the exhibition. It's about very, very heavy topics from war and rape to the destruction of homes and land and people who are separated and we don't know if they'll get back to each other. But there's so much, not just humor, but love 
in the exhibition. I hope. Even just the story that you told about getting the work yeah. and having it go through not just across borders, but it went through your family and came to you. Um, and I think, honestly, I think that's why you keep curating difficult shows. <laughs> because you're so, I mean, as you said, you are the artist's curator. You know, they're not your artist. You're their curator. But they're all kind of bringing things to you. And I think it's because you, you love the artists that you work with. You oh, know, yeah. that you really have been able to do these kind of difficult exhibitions. I mean, the exhibition that you did at John Jay, you knew, I mean, you deeply have formed connections with those artists for like the rest of your life with a lot of oh, them. Yeah. A lot you know. of friendships are friendships. lost. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and the same thing with this exhibition, right? I hope. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know, um, the reason why I didn't necessarily want to make this exhibition, the first one that I voiced was, I don't want, I think I, I said, I don't want this war to have first names for me. That I knew that it would get too deep uh, into my heart and I wanted to protect myself as well. But in the other way, I made it for the very same reason I, I, I made it, meaning that I think that in the United States we it's far, it's not our history, it's not our experience, it's not our identity, um, the stories are little known, the, his the local histories are little known, the, the social realm and uh, the legends and the folk tales are, are, are somebody else's. And because also Ukrainian art was, and Ukrainian culture was so little known, the war was a little bit abstract, yeah. still is. Yes. And I wanted for everybody to know these names so that this is not a war in Ukraine anymore, but maybe it's a war in the country where Dana Kavalina comes from or Aleftina Kakhidze. Maybe that will change the abstraction of this war into something more real and more human for people. And because we need to help in it, that's my strong belief, we will, it will be easier for us to help if we know the best artists of that country. Yes. I mean, I think it does. I think it has, even just for me, you know. I now, for example, Dana, this brilliant artist who's in Ukraine. I mean, just, I never knew anything about this work before. And I felt so genuinely moved yesterday when I came to see the exhibition and I got to spend time really with the work. I mean, it is just such, the nuance and the quality of all of the work in the show is so impressive. Thank um, you. They are. Yeah. Yes. Um, maybe I should say that it's the exhibition will travel. Good. We, oh, we, I didn't know that. That's great. Uh, it, yeah. We all, we have the first venue confirmed. It will go Excellent. to Eastern Connecticut University immediately Good. after Good. New York in September. It will be there on view through mid-October. And then we are almost sure of another venue. I can't speak about that yet because mm -hmm. it's not a done deal. Mm -hmm. But we're very open to let it travel more and more. And maybe that will also allow us to, you know, bring each artist or some of some more artists yes. over that time if the, you know, the hosting venues will allow for that and will make it possible. So hopefully we will not, we will get to know them much better. I hope so. And uh, also that means that other people get to have the experience I had, you know, like, yeah, which is yeah. just coming in. Yeah. And I really feel like a connection with a lot of the artists just from 
looking at their work and getting to know it and hearing their stories. So as we're kind of getting close to the end. Let's start with a tiny thing that we didn't speak about, but you almost asked for it, so I want I, to go back to I it. Did, Katarina, I, Katarina Yermawayeva. I think it's important in New York to speak about this artwork. Uh, another artist who lost her home in Donbass in 2014, yes. she made uh, an incredible, beautiful life-size installation representing her house and her grandmother's house. Right. Out of memory, you know, like Camus uh, survived a time in prison, like memorializing his house and where yes. each object yeah. lied. Yeah. So she did the same with her houses, uh, homes that, were, that belonged to her family in Donbass. She did a huge project of in 2015 for Pinto Card Center, the mm -hmm. most powerful exhibition for uh, exhibition space for contemporary art in, in Kiev. She went into depression after this project. It completely cracked her into pieces. Mm. She shared um, with me, but also with others before, it's not a secret, uh, she, she went into a period of losing herself, a sense of herself, both, both as artist and as a person. And she keeps uh, experimenting with her uh, many personas mm -hmm. and also non-binary personas, mm -hmm. queer personas, uh, gender roles. It takes her in many directions. And you know, the war is only worse. So of course. I don't know where this uh, exploration will take her next. But that's, that's, that's one of the tragic works in the exhibition it and is. also maybe a hopeful work. Yeah, I hope so. Because even though the fragmentation is so difficult and comes out of all of the trauma that she's experienced, there's also a lot of hopefulness in the way she's mobilized her art practice to experiment with yeah. it, right? Yeah. To just yeah, take yeah, yeah. on personas. Yeah. And I think it's maybe, I hope for her, that can be a really healing thing. Yeah. You know, to enact and play and then photograph, like all of the stages of that, it seems like a very cathartic way of dealing with that that's feeling. that's yeah. what I hope for. I hope so. And I think that she hopes for it too. Yeah. I mean, we all know that <laughs> about therapeutic uh, qualities of art. Yes. Although, you know, sometimes you can be let down. But <laughs> in the in the kind of Yes, like and there is of course a history of, of looking down mm -hmm. at therapeutic uh, values of art, but I don't think uh, I think we're past it. Yes. We just learned that we can speak about it finally. <laughs> It's one of very huge yes. reasons why people make art. Yes. So the exhibition will be here at Friedman Gallery 169 Bowery, uh, very close to New Museum throughout the summer until August 26. It's open Monday through Friday because it's the summer. Great. But we do have several public programs coming. Mm -hmm. We keep organizing them on Wednesday, so it's easy mm -hmm. for all of you to remember. Good. There will be two Zoom conversations in July with artists participating in the show. So you, if you can't come to the gallery, uh, there will be first online uh, live, and then we will, of course, archive them. So they will be available later on. So on July 13th and 27th, we will have two conversations. And then um, on July the 20th, in between those two Wednesdays, and mm -hmm. the one that was between, uh, in person here, everybody will be able to watch uh, a silent film masterpiece from 1930 by Alexander Dovzhenko, mm -hmm. a Ukrainian filmmaker, a film that uh, is titled Zimlia, The Earth or the mm -hmm. Soil, which is um, about Holodomor, about the beginnings of Holodomor. Uh, that mass so, starvation so that we mentioned. Yes. Yeah. There's a silent film you can do 
whatever you want with with the oral <laughs> yeah. uh, oral environment. <laughs> And the gallery will uh, put, uh, there, there, there is existing recording uh, by Daka Braca, mm-hmm. uh, a fantastic world music or ethnic music quartet from Ukraine uh, put to this movie. So this will be played. Really great. And yeah. that's, it's also, this music is also background to mm-hmm. Oksana Chapelik video. So mm-hmm. there is a connection to her work in the exhibition. And I think it will be a wonderful event to also learn a little bit about folk traditions in Ukraine mm-hmm. and uh, and it's very traumatic, wonderful. dramatic history. And we will yeah. put together more events for August. Great. So that's July 20th. Yeah, that's July 20th. Stick us to our websites. Everything is at uh, FriedmanGallery.com and also at my website. You'll see it in the show note below. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It means so much. This exhibition is, obviously, it's incredibly important. I am shocked by the nuance of it. I mean, I really feel like I've learned about many different personalities and people in the show. That's exactly how much I learned, you know. Knowledge... (laughs) production of knowledge is the most collaborative uh, effort that humanity can make and I think that organizing exhibitions is learning and sharing knowledge so thank you for co-sharing for (laughs) taking and giving thank you this is Field Pod Summer Sort have a great summer yourself and say your you name. You have to cut it but, 20 times. It's terribly long.